On the one hand, the ancient city-state, the Germanic commune, and feudalism presuppose the great empires and cannot be understood except in terms of the Erstat that serves as their horizon. On the other hand, the problem of confronting these forms is to reconstitute the Erstat insofar as possible, given the requirements of their new distinct determinations. For what do private property, wealth, commodities, and classes signify? The breakdown of codes. The appearance, the surging forth of now-decoded flows that pour over the socius, crossing it from one end to the other. The state can no longer be content to overcode territorial elements that are already coded and must invent specific codes for flows that are increasingly deterritorialized, which means putting despotism in the service of the new class relations, integrating the relations of wealth and poverty, of commodity and labor, reconciling market money and money from revenues, everywhere stamping the mark of the Erstat on the new state of things. And everywhere, the presence of the latent model that can no longer be equaled, but one cannot help but imitate. The Egyptians' melancholy warning to the Greeks echoes through history. You Greeks will never be anything but children. The very roots of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to the Machine Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion, come visit us at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H and send us a book a month. Today we are going back to Anti-Oedipus chapter three, sections eight and nine on the Urshot and the capitalist machine. Coop, how are we doing today? Very well, very well. I thought this was a pr- this at least starting chapter on the Erstadt was pretty a fun start to the reading, I think. Yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. Gets progressively more difficult as you yeah. close out chapter chapter three, but this at least first section is fairly, I think, manageable in terms of the, the difficulty of the material. Yes, yes. And we're gonna do our best to uh to unpack. Yeah. It's just one of the the words that I Never, I mean, like unpacking a text is this phrase that you pick up from like getting an English degree. You have to like use that phrase, you know, I mean, whenever you, you talk about trying to, to like parse difficult sections and you're hermeneutically like trying to excavate little fragments of meaning and and extract a little surplus, extract a little surplus. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. A little surplus code. I have heard colleagues and friends that say they hate the term unpack, but I, I don't necessarily hate it. I just know that it's a, it's one of those words that's like branded on my, right. on my I cerebrum. Mean, elucidate is a good mm-hmm. synonym. Yep. But yeah, it just doesn't, I don't know. It's not as, it's, it's a diff, it's a difficult for pronunciation, you know? I mean, elucidate is definitely a part of unpacking, but, you know, elucidate is, is almost a little too courageous or a little too, uh, what's a good word for it? It's a little, 
not arrogant, but presupposing that you'll be successful in your unpacking <laughs> and that, that you will be able to actually perform the gesture. You started off the cold open is, is a great quote. And this notion of the breakdown of codes is, uh, is interesting, right? We, yeah, we kind of are, you can see that as we get deeper and deeper into, into chapter three, that they are not only performing a genealogy of the state and of the Urstadt, but at the same time, or because this is a part of their theory of the development of, of the socius and its different instantiations, we're seeing a kind of genealogy of codes and flows. Yeah. yeah. Right. We're seeing the, how they evolve or a better word for it, how they drastically change from each machine, each socius machine. We started with the territorial machine, which is it, the socius is meant to code the flows that flow over the body of the organs of the earth. We see that in the despotic machine, this becomes a new mode where it is about overcoding because now we have erection of the despot. We have yeah, the erection. Dom- of the we have dominated peoples, right? That's very you know? phallic, right? The erection of the despot. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting into this question of decoded flows, of flows that are increasingly more deterritorialized and decoded, and the breakdown of codes, as they they say, right? Which they even put in italics. On this note of decoded flows, to me, it almost seems like kind of looking at the modern, contemporary, let's say, I guess, political at least nominally political declarations that people make, right? People that identify with the right or left. I think there's a certain overlap in those groups that appear to share this idea of, or like they seem to be repulsed by the decoded flows or like they want to code the flows. There seems to be an obsession that crosses both sides of the political spectrum, if you're going to simplify to this binary, I guess. And this seems to be the primary, to me, split between politics. People that want coded flows and people that want to allow more coded flows within the socius. It's interesting, right? We've talked about this a little bit, especially when we discussed Leotard. You know, his one of his opening theses in the postmodern condition is this notion that capital doesn't care about nation states, and yet they are still a part of our political reality, and they are just to use Deleuze and Guattari's terms, they are kind of residual re-territorializations of capital. You know, in a, in a certain sense, capital doesn't really care what, what monetary form it, it comes in, what faces on the, is stamped on the, um, on its currency, on its bills, on its currency. But we still have these, uh, these nationalities, these, these states for which it has a complex relation as, as we'll kind of see in the, in the next section, you know, don't just to anticipate a little bit where they kind of say, on the one hand, the state is kind of forming a type of limit or blockage for the absolute deterritorialization that capital should imply as it continuously expels or pushes back, displaces its limit as it comes towards it. But on yeah. the other hand, the state also forms this means of appropriating the surplus value. And so one of my favorite little quotes they have, which they put in in parentheses, almost as an aside, it's like the Second World War achieved through the military industrial complex what the New Deal couldn't. couldn't. Right. We'll get into that. Uh, We'll have to save some time for the next section. But let's definitely, let's start with um, with this notion of the Erstadt. And you did a little 
bit of background reading on the city of Ur, right? Let's talk, let's maybe start there and talk about, talk about this famous biblical. Right. Yeah. So this is supposedly the birthplace of Abraham, obviously the father patriarch, the, the phallus, if you will, of the, of the Abrahamic religions. Mm -hmm. Supposedly this exists in, um, the city was within Mesopotamia, the Sumerian, more or less. I mean, I don't know the, because I think there's the Chaldeans. Or I always pronounce it Chaldeans, like but Chaldeans. I could be wrong. I don't know. Chaldeans. Never talking, I never <laughs> talked to archaeological yeah. friends. I don't have many of those, but but yeah, it's it's where Abraham was born. And, and as they say, it's kind of the, they take that name and they attach to the Urstadt, you know, as, as we've seen that it's, we've talked about it a little bit, it comes fully armed, kind of like Athena out of the head of Zeus, right? It's it's this interesting notion where it's like the state didn't necessarily come about at a certain time in history. It's, it's sort of always been there, even in these proto forms. And I think a good metaphor, I was maybe DMing you or posting about this this week was the, uh, the xenomorph from aliens. You know, it's like you have, I guess, that's a slightly different, right? Because you have the, in there, you have the, the overcoding of the face hugger, right? Is is overcoding this whatever the, the body. biological entity that is biological entity of. but yeah. then the i guess the it works in the sense that you know the alien sort of erupts all at once right like mm -hmm. it's not this progressive thing well i mean i guess it sort of is right because it it grows following that but at least there's a definitive rupture right through the obviously the famous scene so i don't, I don't know if that kind of helps to sort of this gets more Detail in the Prometheus movies too, right? You know, just the notion of the the alien xenomorphs kind of always haunting the uh, the humanoid intelligent species. The inhuman, yeah. The inhuman. Yeah, it's the inhuman, the inhuman within the, the human. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting that they state right at the very beginning of this section that it's the site of the new alliance. Right. As you said, Abraham being the father of the, the monotheistic Abrahamic religions, you know, he enters this covenant with God who promises him. And at the time, he, he didn't have legitimate children. He may have had already had Ishmael with um, right. Hagar. Hagar, yeah. And that may have already happened when he's promised that his seed or his, his offspring will outnumber the stars in the sky. Right. It's something God says something like that, which yeah. seems very... Hard to believe, if you will, for where Abraham is at that point. Yeah, and, it, and at the time before the covenant, right? I mean, his name is his name is Abram. So part of the covenant is his name changes too. So that's a part of the alliance. Obviously, the ritual of circumcision as the mark and the inscription of holding the promise becomes a tradition and sets his offspring apart. Trajectory, right? That they are right. they are part of the, the chosen people, so to speak. For this new alliance. I'm almost certain that God directs Abraham to lay with Hagar to produce the offspring mm -hmm. because of Sarah yeah. was like barren, allegedly, or something like that. Right, right. The wife of Abraham was Sarah. If For those of you that are not biblically aligned, let's say. I believe that's true. I'd have to revisit my Bible school notebooks. But, you know. Yeah, that, I'm that... almost certain that the Genesis lays that out very straightforwardly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this and, was at God's behest. Right. And I think even God addresses Sarah and like gets her on board with him with this whole right. this whole thing, which is kind of odd. 
God gives him several demands or several commands, one of which is to pretty much, I don't know how to say it, to trick the Pharaoh, right? You know, in a way that will increase his his flock and his peoples and his, his wealth. He introduces Sarah as his sister for Pharaoh to lay with as a concubine or whatever. And God kind of gets angry in the Pharaoh's God, just go away, you know, take your sister and here, take all, take some flocks of goats and sheep and kind of increases his, his wealth in this way of, um, well, that wouldn't be Pharaoh, would it? Cause this predates. Was it not, exodus. was it not, was it not oh, the, the Pharaoh? Was it, was it just some Royal? I was probably one of these underling Chaldeans or Babylonian. I, I don't, like I said, I, I'm not sure of the history yeah. of the groups, but it's, I think ancient Sumeria could be like, at least that's within the ballpark of the time frame. That we're speaking of now, the Egyptian that flows later through through Moses. Joseph. Well, oh, yeah, Moses okay. preceding Moses because you had the twelve tribes of Israel, Jacob, and they. But that's wi- through Abraham's line, right? right. Yes, correct, yeah. correct. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Chronologically, what happens is I think Joseph is sold into slavery. He winds up rising up within the the Egyptian state, and then his there's a. Because he, he solves a, the problem of the drought with his dream. Correct, correct. Yes. Mm. And and so as part of that whole narrative, the brothers come to Egypt seeking out grain due to the thing, and he recognizes them. And so that sort of, I guess, is the impetus for how the events that lead sort of to Exodus over over the centuries or whatever time period. I'm not sure what time period even passes between Joseph yeah, and we're- we're we're showing our uh, our religious dilettantism, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So this is where the the notion of Ur comes from. And I mentioned to you before this that this notion of Urstadt is, uh, you know, Pierre Claster says in the Influx Roundtable, which is found in the Chaos V volume. You know, he says that this is the chief new conceptualization, the the conceptual creation that they bring in this chapter. That's something that that is worth dealing with and worth contemplating for ethnologists and anthropologists. Deleuze himself says in an interview that this was one of Guattari's many conceptual creations that was, uh, I believe it's in the same area where he talks about when he first meets Guattari and Guattari is talking about design machines and Deleuze is kind of talking about Guattari being light years ahead of where he was when he was writing Logic of Sense. And that's kind of something that made Deleuze be like, I got to work with this guy, (laughs) you know? And we have talked about that. He said elsewhere that Guattari did did the majority, the bulk of the writing, you know, and Deleuze would more or less play a role of editor. Contributing editor. (laughs) Which he's probably being, he's also probably being. um, Yeah, he's deflecting um, a bit of his own. Minimizing his own additions because you can see, you can see a lot of Deleuze's ideas throughout the work. It uh, does feel like, I don't know. I think. I mean, Deleuze is a fantastic writer. I, he's a brilliant writer. And I feel like you can tell the sections where it's Guattari and where it's Deleuze. Sometimes you can. Sometimes I definitely think there are parts where you can definitely tell, okay, this has this has a more Deleuzean ring to it. This sounds like stuff he's worked on in his monographs. Yeah, exactly. The stuff on Nietzsche, for example, is very dear to, to Deleuze's heart. But then a lot of the other stuff, you know, you can see that it doesn't necessarily sound like Deleuze. And and it's and again, they themselves are modest by saying, like, look, none of us is is singular. We were already these multiplicities. And so you put us together, we're an assemblage, we're a crowd. You know, they they would probably both 
look down on us for trying to be like, okay, where's Guatri's name signed on, on this page and where's Deliz's? They, <laughs> they would, they would discourage that, but I still think it is interesting to, um, to talk about. If I might, this isn't really going to necessarily go too far, but I do just kind of want to bring this up because I think it's interesting just in the way that they conceive of, I guess, these, I guess the social formations reminds me very much of, in biology, I believe there was a sort of two theories of how evolution functions. It's like, and I've mentioned this before, is that there's the phyletic gradualism and there's the punctuated equilibrium model where it's almost like they're describing like the state emerging fully armed is basically this this punctuated equilibrium. It's like mm-hmm. sort of like at that one moment where things are crystallized versus this sort of very linear process that I think is an antiquated model for how change occurs within systems, let's say. We've talked about it a little bit, but whenever they say evolution, whether it be biological or anthropological, sociological, they mean it in a very different sense than in the way in which evolutionism tended to predominate yeah. in classical sociology and in sort of the earliest text, which, as Klaster says, has a type of ethnocentrism that has to be brought to its own self-critique, right? It has to be able to be uh, be pointed out and, and deconstructed and all of that. As they start the chapter off by saying like, look, you know, um, universal history is contingent, ironic, singular, all this. And so they ask the question over and over, why capitalism not happened in, in China in 14th century, 13th century, which we discussed last, last time. Last week, yeah. Not last week. But, but. but yeah, I mean, I, I think this this is interesting to think that it reminds me a lot of, I forget where he says that. I think it's in Logic of Sense where Deleuze says like, once you have a bit of language, once you have any part, it's everything. It's all there. It's kind of all or nothing with yeah, um, right. for Deleuze with language. And it seems like, you know, they do say that, oh, it's it's always existed, but it is kind of like that where it's like, it's as we like said. Like in, in an a priori fashion, in a, like in a transcendent, well. They say it's the basic formation on the horizon throughout history. So, I mean, in a, in a certain sense, it is kind of, it's like once you have, once you have a bit of the state, you have, it's all, it's all there. And this is part of what Clasters himself says when he's like, look, there's no such thing as a pure nomad. There's always a, a formation of stock back at the encampment. And it's not just following pure flows. That's kind of a fantasy. So I think that involved in that already is kind of the call it proto-state, but that's not the word they use here. That's just my way of trying to find other words for it. And so in essence, the Erstadt is it's kind of like the model, right, for all the states that we have found in history. So in that sense, yeah, as you used the word, I believe just a second ago, it's it's kind of a, a transcendental, if you will. It has an imminence. Wait, and no, that no, I'm thinking of not imminence. Then. I'm, thinking of well, I'm thinking of the later on in the chapter when they're talking about. Well, no, else. they will talk about that. That's right. But it's it's kind of the Urshad is is kind of the description of the conditions of possibility for any state whatsoever, right? Yeah. I think that's kind of the way I would understand it. But it is interesting. The where's this language of the punctuated equilibrium and the phyletic gradualism? Oh, I, just, I vaguely just recall this from um, maybe from biology. That's cool. I think I think it works here. Yeah, so it does work here. I mean, it's certainly the punctuated equilibrium follows the model of desire that they of desiring mm-hmm. production the way that they outline, I think, right? Because it's yeah. a it's in fits and starts. It's not this smooth yeah. curve or whatever you have. 
it just kind of cursed life for me. What they're saying is it's all about this notion of these forms being completely contingent and not locked into this linear progression. Yes. Right. Yes. Just in terms of their kind of historical materialist, roughly approach, I guess, is like, what's the meme with the blocks? It's the first one is this tiny little block and then it yep. ascends up to a giant block. So that's the, the, domi- of, the domino effect. The domino effect right. is yeah. sort of what they're arguing against in a, in a sense in the linearity of time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's too, um, that's too, too neat easy. And tidy. It's, yeah, it's too exactly. easy. Yeah. It's, it's too clean. Right. It's a kind of hygienicized and aseptized version of, of history. So yeah, I, I can see how punctuate equilibrium is a, is a biological term, but it, it works here provided certain analogies being made. But, uh, it's interesting that, again, this kind of points to the transcendental part where they say on page 219 about how it's not like any other historical break, the Erstadt or the development of the state, which they normally put in, in capital S, where they say, um, this is yeah. why Marxism didn't know quite what to make of it. It has no place in the famous five stages, primitive communism, ancient city-states, feudalism, capitalism, socialism, and they put in italics. It is not one formation among others, nor is it the transition from one formation to another. They call it a cerebral ideality, which again is an interesting way of putting it. It's a cerebral ideology that is added to superimpose on the material evolution of societies, a regulating idea or principle of reflection, terror, that organizes the parts and the flows into a whole. And then you can go on, but there's this interesting notion that... Do you have an understanding of how this works? To clarify, that it's not like any other historical break. Yeah, um, the way I kind of understand it is they kind of say this thing where it's not something that comes from the outside in the sense in which we understood the despotic state that it kind of happens, it happens off to the side, alongside. It forms this model, I keep using that word, but it forms this sort of way in which the elements of the socius are, they kind of come in this reciprocal interaction. There's a, there's a great quote to, like, to unpack this, where this is on 221, and it's this long list of things where... They say the state was first this abstract unity that integrated sub-aggregates functioning separately. It is now subordinated to a field of forces whose flows it coordinates and whose autonomous relations of domination and subordination it expresses is no longer content to overcode territorialities. It must constitute invent new codes for the decoded flows of money, commodities, and private property. It no longer of itself forms a ruling class or classes. Is itself formed by these classes? yada, 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 right? It's, it's this way in which, as you, you used the word earlier, the state becomes imminent to the state with a capital S, the Erstadt, as, as its model, as this transcendental principle, becomes integrated and becomes imminent to social formations, to the socius. Does that make sense? So internalized within, which makes sense, right? Because if it erupts out of nowhere, in a sense, the seeds have to already be sort of present. Like, are they... Are they saying that it doesn't come from outside, but it exists on the periphery of the existing socius? It seems like it's. I mean, you gave the example of the stores within the nomadic model. Yeah, and that kind of ties in, but I don't. I don't know. Well, it's um because it's also a con- it's a contingent formation too, which I don't know how to square the imminent and the contingent element exactly. 
the thing is, it seems like the contingency is in the conjunctions of, of encounters. And from what I'm getting is that the Erstadt is a way of understanding the different social formations and how everything starts to integrate. We could think of it as a, as a part whole relation. What helped me a lot was when they refer to Marx and the Grunrisse. There, Marx kind of says, it's only when the, the forces are developed in a concrete enough way that we can understand the abstract elements of it, right? So okay. this is it's kind almost of like a Hegelian sort of tip, yeah. right? Yeah, the, the way they end this whole list on 221, they say, in brief, it, and I think they're talking about the Erstadt, it does not cease being artificial, but it becomes concrete. It tends to concretization while subordinating itself to the dominant forces. The existence of an analogous evolution has been demonstrated for the technical machine when it ceases to be an abstract unity or intellectual system reigning over separate sub-aggregates to become a relation that is subordinated to a field of forces operating as a concrete physical system. So this tendency to concretization in the social or technical machine, they basically say it's the movement of desire. Yeah. That desire is what makes the Erstadt this imminent principle. Yeah, because they talk about how Marx conceived of history moving from abstract to concrete as well. In my head, this is kind of a scrambled notion. Um, <laughs> I think that it's that... If that is true, it is only from the development of the concrete. It's only from the concretization that one can see that movement from the abstract to the concrete, right? So it's only from, so even if the Urshad is this, it's the idea, what is it, the cerebral ideality, we can only see that in retrospect from capitalism's right. point of view. Yeah, you can't yeah. see the Urshad from within while the despotic regime. Yeah, yeah, right? while it's sort of in uh, gestating, let's say. Right. So it's, it's also only from capitalism point of view that we can understand private property, commodity production, et cetera, right? All of these abstract things, or even like the, the decoding of the, the flows of free labor and the decoding of, of abstract quantities of money. It's only from, from our modern capitalist perspective that we can see that eventuality, even if it's, even yeah. if it comes into, even if those that conjunction was necessary for capitalism. You can't necessarily see yeah. it as, as it's happening. Right. So it is, yeah. this and is you why even, uh, you don't even have a concept. You don't have the conceptual tools to identify the forces right. social at that point, because they're at so, least not as a field, at least not as yeah. an integrated field. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think that that's how I, I understand the earth shot is that it's, it's only from, this is why it's, this is why um, they say history is not just universal history is not just critical it's not just um, singular, it's not just ironic, but it's also retrospective, right? It's the retrospective part. I think that it's from our point of view that we can see the Erstadt as the cerebral ideality, right? That kind of allows us to see how the abstract becomes concrete, right? And how they aren't in opposition, but kind of more in cahoots, right? right. They're, they're, they're collaborating. And uh, Guattari tries to do the same thing in The Machine of Unconscious, where he, he rails against René Tom and his thermodynamic view of, of sort of understanding development by saying that for the kind of semiotic approach that he is describing, 
it's wrong to rank the abstract on the one side and the concrete on the other, like a kind of binary that would privilege one over the other, right? That for Guattari, the abstract and the, and the concrete, this is particularly important for a thousand plateaus where the abstract machine becomes this hard to define, but interesting way of thinking about the conjunction of, uh, you know, of, of non-form matters and, uh, and sort of immaterial forces kind of coming, coming together in these, in these kind of monstrous collaborations. And I, I kind of see the, the earth shot as, as if it's always on the horizon for the social formations, it's only from our belated point of view that we can even perceive that horizon, right? That, that we can Correct. even articulate it. And yeah. they, they say at the end of the section, they talk about the two aspects of a becoming of the state, again, with a capital S. It's internalization in a field of increasingly decoded social forces forming a physical system. It's spiritualization in a supraterrestrial field that increasingly overcodes forming a metaphysical system. This is the hour of the greatest cynicism, that repressed cruelty of the animal man made inward and scared back into himself, the creature imprisoned in the state so as to be tamed. So it's a model, it's a kind of a, a, a transcendental model for understanding the becoming of states. And I think becoming there is a, is a better word than evolution. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you know, it's for sure. But this is a good question, and this is something that I'm not going to say they could have been clearer about. I mean, Deleuze and Guattari themselves kind of say, like, we have to be more direct. We have to be more, like, we have to be less stuffy and less intimidating, right, with this big tome, because Anti-Oedipus is a very fucking difficult book. Right. But, you know, this notion of, as you said yourself, you know, Marx recognized that there was indeed a way in which history proceeded from the abstract to the concrete, and this is, I think, the, the Gruner's quote that I was talking about. The simple categories are the expression of relations within which the less developed concrete may have already realized itself before having posited the more many-sided connection or relation which is mentally expressed in the more concrete category, while the more developed concrete preserves the same category as a subordinate relation. So it's this interesting way in which we can retrospectively see how there is this movement of the concrete that is forming more and more dimensions in its relation in its relationality and is able to sub subordinate the different forces into a, in a into a concrete whole so something like i guess religion some type of you know I was talking about in the pre-show about the what is it gobekli tepe yeah which is like, I think the oldest known man-made structure, it's sort of, it's theorized that, so this is a place that's like a Neolithic site in Turkey where they discovered these sort of, I guess they were pillars of stone that were carved with, with like stone tools and have animal designs and so forth on them. And they found these vats as well at the sites. The theories are that tribes would gather at this specific hilltop and they would basically feast. So sort of like the potlatch sort of discussions we've been having relative to anti-Oedipus, symbolic exchange, the cluster, society against the state, yeah. all, all yeah. of that sort of fits within this kind of discussion, I think. The interesting idea that's been posited, and this is not super revolutionary, but so they theorize that the development of 
basically enough having enough beer like they found residue of what could potentially be beer within these vats and so the theory goes that as part of this feasting process the need to supply the tribes with enough beer led to sort of a a type of institution of agriculture a sort of and this potentially could be the sort of i don't know what would you call it the uh the proto state or a way that the proto state right. would have formed it is interesting to think about it as it's groups of nomadic hunters right tribes clans Correct. whatever you want to call it that yeah. are meeting to to form a more let's not say a more perfect union but to form a a higher or wider union a confederacy to a certain extent a loose confederacy right, right? i mean i don't have a good word for it a, a conjunction of of stocks and flows, right? I mean, they're, yeah. if, if, yeah, if, they, exactly. if everybody's bringing something to the table, like a potluck, I mean, you use the word potlatch, but, you know, in our modern idea of everybody bringing a little bit of something for everyone to share, everyone to get a little, a little, little surplus from each right. other. And it is interesting. I mean, you brought up religion, but this, this notion of it being the first, the world's first temple, right? A, a sanctuary and, and a means for religious celebration. I mean, in the in the broadest, loosest sense, it doesn't have. I, mean, to I be wouldn't even. I don't even know if I'd characterize it that way. But you know, potentially, yes. But even just the feast sort of thing, right? Like even just at that level alone, I think there's enough sort of metastable ground, perhaps, for this to arise without even religion as a sort of as we know it, as definitely. we know it existing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I, I was thinking about how in one of his lecture courses, Deleuze talks about religion not as ideological, but as as a means of coding. As one of we could even think about it as as a cerebral ideality of coding, right? Of providing codes for means of conduct, means right, of yeah. activity, means of gathering, means of means of production. Worship, honestly, means of production about, too. You know, thinking about this and in consumption. Terms of- yeah, because think about this in terms of how in tune with the, I guess, the astrological phenomenon, et cetera, relative to planting, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, well, I guess that's a bit further forward within, but I don't know. You, this, we could speculate perhaps that to some degree, these sort of, this sort of technological machines exist in some fashion, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the first social machines we know of. So whether we call it a proto-state or or one of the first states, you know, I, I think of it as, I mean, it's definitely one of the first gatherings of people that could be called a city. You know, it's it's hard to say if it even functioned like that in terms right. of a in terms of a sedentary. It provided a model for what we understand Correct. by by right, a sedentary right. yeah. distribution of exactly. land of actually like cutting out. A region, which is interesting insofar as it's a nomadic city, right? It, it, it's, it itself is sedentary, right? But the, the, the tribes themselves, the tribes aren't necessarily dwelling within it, but it does cut out a region, right? Yeah. It is a different, it distributes space. There's a certain territorialization, right? Yes. Yeah. Effectively, right? Marking yeah, so, of space. At, this is a sort of sacred communal space. Yep. And you brought up you brought up um, Stonehenge earlier, and Stonehenge is interesting because it's not just it's like as calendar. far as we know, it's not merely a an edifice for 
you know, like druidic religious rituals. It also has a practical function as we've come to learn from science based on its positioning. It is potentially, at least we, we think of it has a practical function besides right. technical, machine. Not, not that religion isn't practical, as we said, because it, it yeah, as, true, as I mentioned, right. it's about coding, but it potentially allowed for astronomical obser- observations. And in that sense could be a much broader used to which would be social organization and planning and um, which would be tied to mode of production which mode of production pretty, agricultural pretty planning right the so yeah i mean it's i would assume that there would be a lot of different functions if we reduce it to function and not just i mean even celebrating and gathering together has has these functions of of a kind of you know as you said a kind of gift economy of a kind of circulation of of goods and exchange and um we still don't really know enough about this, the site, you know, it, it does say that only 5% of it has been excavated. So, you know, what's the, it's kind of the tip of the iceberg. On a tangent, if anyone's interested, the size and extent of the structures are, are really immense. And this is Neolithic era. So this is, there's no metal tools. This is all done with by hand with stone tools. Mm-hmm. And they achieve these sort of fairly large, they like 15 meter high cutouts and shit. It's wild with rocks, man. Just bashing a man and a rock. I mean, where there's a will, there's a way, right? <laughs> exactly, so, right. You know, it's um. So writing so in, comes in, first, which is interesting, right? What's it's that? almost like writing comes first, mm. marking comes first. Well, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The <laughs> writing in the broadest sense, right? Yeah. Inscription. Um, Inscription territorialization. Yeah, they found different animal sigils. I'll describe them as shorthand in different areas of the site where the, and that's the sort of evidence for this potential being a, a place where multiple different clans would come and, and feast or do some type of ritual or, you know, this is all highly, highly speculative, but. Yeah. Here they, they, they talk about it in terms of latency, right? That it is like an abstraction that belongs to another dimension, always at a remove and struck by latency, but that springs back and returns stronger than before in the later forms that lend it a concrete existence. A protean state, yet there has never been one, but one state. Almost a contradiction in terms, but, you know, that it goes again, that goes again to it being a kind of transcendental model. Again, not the words they use, but just trying to grope right. at, at, yeah. at, at other, <laughs> other descriptions. There's a footnote. I don't know if you grabbed it. Not an endnote, but a footnote. It's on 222. Did you see this? Because they talk about uh, Christianity taking over the, the Roman state, right? At a certain point, we've talked about this, where, where Constantine sees that uh, the state religion of Rome isn't really working out and fighting the Christians isn't really working out. And it's actually giving them more, uh, it's giving them more ammunition. So the state machine kind of appropriates Christianity and they kind of, you know, Deleuze and Guattari kind of say that there are those who wanted to, the Christian state, there are those who wanted to just take over the empire. And obviously that's part of what we got. We know that history, the Holy Roman Empire being even much later, but, you know. Well, it this, wasn't Holy Roman or an empire. Right, anything about <laughs> Yeah. But then there were the others that they say uh, there were purists who wanted a fresh start in the wilderness, a new beginning for a new alliance, a rediscovery of the Egyptian and Syriac inspiration that would provide the emphasis impetus for a transcendent Urstadt. The first Which, primitive, the first anarcho primitives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. They wanted a 
It says, in this sense, Christianity was able to develop a whole set of paranoiac and celibate machines, a whole string of paranoiacs and perverts who also form part of our history's horizon and people our calendar. And then the footnote, as you see, talking about, you know, first come the gentle paranoiacs who install themselves close to a village, then withdraw into the desert where they invent astonishing ascetic machines expressing their struggle against the old alliances and affiliations, the St. Anthony stage. Next, communities of disciples or form monasteries where one of the main activities is to write the life of the founding saint. Celibate machines with a military discipline where the monk reconstructs around him in the form of ascetic and collective constraints, the aggressive universe of the old persecutions, which, as we know from a lot of the history of Christianity, the one way you know God is cares about you and your destiny is the fact that you are facing trials and tribulations and, and persecutions. And then finally, the return to the city or village, armed groups of perverts who assign themselves the task of struggling against the dying paganism. Points to a text there. But I thought that was kind of interesting to think about. That's part of the, the history of Christianity is not just taking over the state and its functions, even to the point of kind of being a pan anti-state, as we know in the history of Europe, right, with the way the Catholic Church function with its anti, with the Pope and the anti-Pope and who gets to crown the rightful king and, and who gets to kind of dictate the destiny of these nation states, right? That, that kind of struggle. It is interesting to think about the, the monks and the ascetics and, and, and this, the paranoiacs that, that want to start, start fresh, start a new alliance. What do you think about, I mean, this is kind of, running a little bit with this emergence of or this discussion of Christianity, but the Oedipal sort of triangle of Christianity and itself of, I was just thinking about this, about uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how that ties into the infinite debt that is taken on, and right. et cetera, through, right? Because we owe this infinite Dead right for our salvation to Christ or God or whatever. How are you right? Doing? They quote the the Nietzsche quote from Genealogy of Morals, right? That God making Himself man to to make the debt infinite by sacrificing Himself for. Yeah, I mean it. I mean, I have thought about this some. Um, there's also perhaps it, even a master slave relation. Maybe right. I don't know. Like, it's. I mean, it's. It's hard to say, right? I mean, it. It, it all depends on kind of like the emphasis you put on the syllable. <laughs> yeah. Um. Because supposedly we're made in God's image, but eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the there is this intimation that that we will become like gods and threaten God and and His ascendancy. You can find that myth in a lot of different religions. You see it in Greek myth, right? That's why Prometheus is, is punished for bringing fire, bringing techne to, to man. This is from earlier in the chapter, but I thought it, I think it's interesting how they pointed out that the Greek gods hadn't been universalized. And so I think right, yeah. Christ is sort of this Roman Empire Christ thing is sort of universalizing Christianity. Right. Through the, I mean, how would you characterize Rome because it's not exactly a it's not a capitalist quite economy well they call it a, a slave economy yeah okay right that it's a it has elements and they they quote what um quote Marx's I guess this is in section nine so we'll kind of if we need to go back to eight we will but we can move forward they, they quote um section in section nine they quote Marx's letter to 
what is his name, Mil- Milkai Kailovsky. And it's the example of Rome specifically, where you have commodity production, you have a kind of proto or pseudo proletarianization of, of labor. You have all these different elements that could, again, even before the example they gave of China, where they shut down the mines, you have a lot of these conditions that seem necessary for the development of capitalism. And yet they are relatively dependent on the, the formation such that they can't conjoin, right, in the way that they say it. Where is it? This is on 223, so the next page. They say, let us, let us take the example of Rome. The decoding of landed flows through the privatization of property, the decoding of the monetary flows through the formation of great fortunes, the decoding of the commercial flows through the development of commodity production, the decoding of the producers through expropriation and proletarianization, all the preconditions are present. Everything is given without producing a capitalism, probably speaking, but rather a regime based on slavery. And yeah. that end note is to, to Marx's short letter where uh, you may have seen me tweet that out, the little section. What's interesting here, and this may be a sort of way to propel us forward in the discussion, is that they did have a currency, right? They had a form of mm-hmm. money, mm-hmm. although I don't know how that <laughs> that's getting a little bit far afield, I think, or at least stepping a little bit outside of my comfort zone in terms of being able to understand how the money functioned. At that it is fascinating that, that we, not all coins are like this, not all currency, but definitely Rome shows, gives an example of some early currency in, in our history. And one of the things that we still do is the relation of faciality to currency, right? The stamp of the, right, of the, the emperor. So image. There, are, there are some emperors we really only know through sometimes just like statues Sometimes historical information is scant when there were a bunch of emperors in, in a very short time, you know, a little bit later. But but a lot of emperors we know a little bit about through the stamping of their faciality on, on the coins. And it is kind of like, on the one hand, it is meant as a guarantor of value. We still practice this today with our dead presidents, with the exception of Benjamin Franklin, who kind of has a, his own little role in, in our nation's founding. He's still considered a founding father, even if he wasn't a president. So that just kind of shows it doesn't take an emperor anymore, right? The president president in a democratic society is not an emperor. But on the other hand, it also kind of shows, you know, it is the render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? It's being literally given the, the face of the despot, the dictator, that kind of goes back to the body of the organs of the despot, right? From, you know, that sort of overcodes everything and, and everything flows back through him, all the organs are plugged into the despotic machine, right. you know, and so that faciality is, is kind of, uh, is a relation through which to connect and conjoin our flows and our servitude, you know, to, to a supposedly benevolent representation of the dictator on the face of the coin. It is also this whole history of metallurgy, and mercantile flows that they'll get into in a thousand plateaus. They don't really get into it much here, but they do mention over and over again that one of the things that capitalism does when it, one of the main chief dividers between pre-capitalist societies and capitalist societies for them, right, is that we're no longer functioning on coding systems, right? We're no longer functioning on a system, on an accounting system, on a system of 
whether it be codes or over codes. Now it is the axiomatic of decoded, of decoded flows. And it, just like capitalism can reach its limit and then push it back and displace it, the axiomatic system can do the same thing and just provide a new axiom for wage laborers, for, for credit money, for financing. Each little singularity can be provided its own little axiom, which, as they say, is due to its impersonality, right? Due to its kind of, uh, as Bojar might say, it's like floating metamorphic, almost like monstrous, many-headed aspect, you know, each, each thing having its own axiom, that it, it makes it more, it makes it colder and crueler than the system of cruelty. It makes it more terrifying than the terror of the despotic machine. This is partly how they define the cynicism of it, right? But the, the other thing I would say about Rome, your question, reminds me of Freud, um, I believe it's at the beginning of Civilization is Discontents. He gives this great metaphor, and it is a metaphor, but it's great, where he's talking about the unconscious, and he describes the unconscious like Rome. And he says, like, imagine a Rome where we can, we can kind of ignore the evolution of time and go back and back and, and, and coexisting. We can see the little hillside encampments on Palatine, right? And we can see each new layer on top of each other and they all coexist, right? Uh, up to the, to the great empire that it became. We can kind of see coexisting, you know, everything back to the, to the first little shepherds and, and, uh, and herdsmen kind of gathering together, right? That's how he kind of uses this metaphor for the unconscious too, because for him, the unconscious is kind of ignorant of time. It's ignorant of temporal development. Everything kind of coexists side by side in a way that's not spatially, not in the sense in which we live. We can only kind of understand that in a, in a metaphorical way because that's not how Rome exists. Even, if, even the best excavators can only get so far to say, here's perhaps where the first circle, the first distribution of Rome is, right? That kernel, that little seed that would become Rome. You know, we, we don't really have the necessary technology or, or science to, to be able to say with specific, like here's the first stone laid, right? You're speaking of time. So just was curious if you think this bit about the diachronic and synchronic times mm. having, is that like worth exploring? I'll read the yeah. quote. It's, it's a little bit Please further do. down on the page. It says, for the founders of the state come like lightning, the despotic machine is synchronic, while the capitalist machine's time is diachronic. The capitalists appear in succession in a series that institutes a kind of creativity of history, a strange menagerie, the schizoid time of the new creative break. This notion of a new creative break sounds something, sounds kind of like when Nietzsche describes the breaking of history in two. And I think that that's kind of, they may not be thinking of that quote in particular, but that's basically what they're implying with capitalism. And it doesn't just break history in two, it institutes a totally different form of time. The schizoid time schizoid is, time. you know, it's, I kind of think about it as um, the fact that they'll keep saying this throughout this section where even when capitalism was first starting to be made possible with industrial revolution and these technical developments like the cotton gin and uh, the steam engine, yada, yada, they keep saying that it takes time to develop. It's not something that just 
like the state where it's all right. in a piece. And this is part of the axiomatic, right? That it, it keeps reaching its, its limit and, and, and its interior limit and, and making a new axiom and pushing that limit back, right? And we've talked about this in, in other situations where it's like that which seems initially to threaten capitalism and threaten it with collapse can be commodified and a new axiom can be made for it. You know, a new, maybe even in the beginnings of capitalism, you might think of banning certain publications for their dangerous ideas, whether it be communistic or anarchistic or whatnot. And now you can buy the collected works of Marx, whatever. It's not a threat. It's so much not a threat that it can be made, made a, new, a new commodity, right? It can be made a new gross product. That whole bit reminded me a little bit because they go to into the falling rate of profit. Yeah. The, but yeah. to me, I'll table that, but the displacing of the internal limit sort of reminded me of capitalism's reliance on the boom and bust cycle because yeah. it's, it's almost like the crises. A, yeah, exactly. The, the crises are built into the function of the system, right? The breakdowns yep. Yep. only propel it to work better, right? The more it breaks down, the more it works the American way, right? Which they say exactly, exactly. Much yeah. earlier on, but go on. Well, <laughs> I don't know if I had much, much else exactly, but I was wondering if that was sort of along the lines of what they were getting at with the displacing of the internal limit, because that's mm-hmm. the first thing yeah. I thought of was how, yeah, it's sort, of, it's, but I don't know that it seems to attach more towards a almost binary flow back and forth between re-territorialization and deterritorialization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's so much entropy builds up in the system of flows that it has to totally kind of there has to be a resetting, and within the resetting, there's sort of a creative destruction. It's almost like you know you you bur- set a forest fire on intentionally, right, to sort of eliminate the potential for revolution, one might say, um, mm-hmm. or like the revolutionary flows of desire, and because uh, that's a pretty good, I think, metaphor relative mm-hmm. to the conflagration, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of tinder building up in our system. We got to set that shit on fire. We got to like churn the dead, the weak, the dead sort of have to be excommunicated and reincorporated within the system. Right. And also the inertia of capital has to finally kind of feels like it maybe stalls out, like the flow sort of stalls out. It can only go so far before it has to be reset in order to reaccumulate and reassert Mm -hmm. itself. And in so doing, it's playing with the coding and overcoding. I don't know. This is yeah, yeah. Kind of um, the track I was on with this. I mean, it's interesting because like Deleuze is like, look, codes, relatively speaking, can still coexist in capitalism, but capitalism doesn't care about it. We don't care about it. We don't or we don't believe in it anymore. Right. That's that's part of, you know, the whole adage about, you know, the way to kill a god is to take away belief, take away its believers. It's kind of similar where there's this slow and you know the slow and infinitesimal death by a million cuts that the codes undergo and the overcodes and it's the same thing that leotard says when he's like he's like look capitalism could easily find ways of justifying itself and there are people who do that we know that they're neoconservatives and they're all kinds of of supporters of the of the capitalist way of life but what his point being is like capitalism doesn't care about about morally justifying itself or, I mean, that's part of how the axiomatic works, right? Because the codes in a certain sense, in the way like Nietzsche understands religion, the only way a religion lives is through ritual, 
right? And so, you know, the system of coding required rituals, right? Required the chief saying, let's live like the ancestors did. Let's live in harmony with their way of life and we will ourselves have prosperity. And so it implies a kind of conservatism, a kind of traditionalism. It implies the life and, and blood of, of performing rituals. That's the only way that, that the codes and the religions live on. And as a know, form to, of, is it a form of inscription? Well, yeah, I mean, it is a form of kind of inscription, huh? I guess. Yeah. I mean, through performance. Right. And it can be an immaterial inscription in a certain way, the way that we understood the, the gift as being imbued with symbolic these power. symbolic and spiritual forces yeah. that kind of burn a hole in your pocket and, and kind of force you to, yeah. to, to counter gift. But in this sense, and this is interesting too, in this sense, if capitalism is born and in fact feeds off of and functions off of decoded flows and deterritorializations, this is why it's not so simple to say that deterritorialization is good right. in and of itself. Correct. Or that decoding is good in and of itself. Yeah. But the paradox is that they kind of end this section. I'm, I'm anticipating a bit again, but they end the section by saying like, look, do we follow Samir Amin with his almost fascist option? It's fascist in the sense that it resembles the fascist option. It's not itself fascist, but do we follow Samir Amin and, and say, look, the third world countries that are actually providing the surplus value for the center, for the first world countries, do we encourage them to leave the global market? Or is perhaps the point, is perhaps the way out is the way th- you have to go through it? Right. Do, do you accelerate the, the, the process might... of deterritorialization? Do you accelerate right. the process of decoding? Have we just not? And Guattari and Sarah's writings, even later, still kind of adheres to this, where he's like, look, we need more shit. We need more gadgets. We need more gizmos. Keep pushing and keep keep going. Now, in, in A Thousand Plateaus, they might they revisit this, and, and this is where relative deterritorialization versus absolute deterritorialization comes into play, and how even one of the things standing in the way of absolute deterritorialization is precisely the axiomatic system. Could you clarify the axiomatic? Because I often hear axiomatic singular of capitalism, Mm -hmm. but then in reading, like there seems to be a whole array of different axioms that could function or exist at any given arrangement within the social. One of the ways I try to think about it is we know from our studies of the territorial machine and the despotic machine that Flows and codes are kind of like continent expression. They come together, right? They yeah. they are complementary, and they describe that the yeah, fear the flows are the flows are getting decoded and overcoded at the same time. Or am I? I know the flows are getting decoded and something else is occurring at the same time. They say it's like a simultaneous process. Right. Maybe that's from later on in the book or the well, chapter, though. Well, yeah, it is a simultaneous process. I mean, like I guess the thing with with say the territorial machine and even with the despotic machine as we saw when the when the chinese emperors or bureaucrats shut down the mines once once a certain stock was filled right so we think about how in gift economies in symbolic exchange as baudrillard talks about 
markets for exchange where, say, money function as an abstract equivalent, they are dependent and they are cordoned off and they are very specific. They are not given free reign. They don't become independent. The blacksmiths, metallurgical inventions, the technicians, mediations with the unknown object, the merchant and the function of of money is all very circumscribed and tightly kept dependent upon the social formations, kept watch over and not allowed to take on the autonomy that we see in capitalist societies. In the first chapters of Capital, right, you know, Marx goes through how the technical development of metallurgy, for example, is one of the necessary prerequisites for silver and gold becoming, they're at once a commodity and yet also the form the commodity form for any other form, any other commodity to be uh, translated into. And today we've, we've even kind of, even if gold is, is still one of those things, it's a safe bet. We're based on credit on, on this kind of faith, right? <laughs> on a, yeah. uh, on a, so that's a, that's a totally another thing, but that's a part of, I think that the, the, oh, the yeah, axiomatic, yeah, yeah. right. It's a part of this notion that what's even more decoded, what's even more decoded and deterritorialized than gold and silver as the abstract equivalent of every other commodity as a money form, yeah. it's precisely faith, right? right. Literally credit. Full credit and faith, rather. Yeah, full faith and credit of the- Faith and credit, yeah. You know, not, you know the, the whatever, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. FDIC insured, all this stuff, right? That is that is an axiomatic development, right? And it's axiomatic in the sense in which it's no longer related to any codes. It is this monstrous, it's this monstrous development whereby- Part of the development of the, of the axiomatic and working on decoded flows, the two major elements that they, they always come back to in the conjunction, the encounter that was missed earlier yeah. is the decoding of free labor. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer indentured servants. We're all given the freedom of selling our labor. Did they describe this as the destruction or classes are not? Because right, class gets brought up about how I guess the capitalist machine eliminates classes or something. There's only one class, the bourgeois class. Or something. You're right. That's, that's right. And for them, classes are the negative of castes and, and, yeah. uh, and other social formations, right? It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of like capitalism is a negative of pre-capitalist societies. And um, the other, obviously, which we kind of talked about a second ago, the other um, decoded flow is the abstract equivalent right? The, the abstract general equivalent of money. It's become even more abstract. I mean, with something like Bitcoin, right? That's a further deterioration of yeah. money, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think, I, mean, uh, I guess at blockchain, we should say broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, it, Guattar, it, do you think Guattari, it sounds like he would have been like, yeah, did fucking do NFTs, whatever, like whatever. Obviously he would have would he saw I mean, this? He, he would have seen this as as another acceleration, right? That we were talking about accelerating the process. But you can be sure that he would have reservations too, right? I mean, this is one of the things with the and Guattari, where for every kind of um, how do I say? I mean, for every potential deterritorialization, they are always very cautious, right? You know, when they talk about making yourself a body without organs, they're like, you can fuck it up. You can right. watch, you can, you can deterritorialize too quickly, which is why Deleuze, he even seems more conservative than Guattari on this point, but Deleuze is like, look, you know, I'm not going to, 
and he was an alcoholic and stuff and he he understands what addiction is he kind of saying like look i'm not saying you know for the youth of the world to you know go out yes experiment you know you can do drugs but there's a way of relying on on drugs as a substitute for other means of of exploring your body with other organs or whatever of forming it you know there's a way in which it literally becomes the substitute for other types of searching other types of of um, becoming nomadic or becoming imperceptible or all the different becomings, becoming intense. There's a way in which the drug use itself can lure us in with the pleasure. And we kind of only then almost like we need that dopamine drip, right? We need that. We become interested. Yeah, we exactly. We become interested in, in the pleasure for pleasure's sake. And that itself is a kind of slavery, right? That is itself yeah, a kind right. of subordination. And, a, and in a right. way, it's also um, a means of, that's the balancing line for Deleuze, right? It's like, it's like okay, I understand what it means to cope in, in, a, in a fucked up world. And that can be a part of regaining strength. But there's a way in which our coping can easily swing into a kind of resentment, a kind of um, reactionary... I mean, who better fits this description than our, our good friend, uh, Mr. Outsideness himself? I actually was talking to, I forget who I was talking. I was talking to my wife about this, where she had just woken up and I was like, you know, Coop, Coop posted, uh, I, I, woke, I said, I woke up with space oddity in my head because I was singing it. And she's like, she's like, your tweet was something like uh, ground control to Major Ganon. Yeah. Major Ganon. And I was like, I was like, yeah, you know. Uh, she just woke up. She's not awake, not had her coffee. I'm like, yeah, you know, Coop, he's interested in this notion of Ganon. And I was like trying to explain it to her and not doing a good job. And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, well, you know, it's um, it's from one of our, this Delusian guy, you know, he, <laughs> he kind of went off the grid and went to move to China and supposedly did a lot of meth. And now he's a little bit, you know, a little bit fascist and, and problematic. And, you know, I was trying to say, like, first of all, reading too much Deleuze doesn't necessarily make you. I was trying to talk about how there's like in vino veritas where I was like, because she's like, oh, you think he did a bunch of meth and became a fascist? I was like, no, I don't think that's how it works. Right. There's a lot of meth heads who aren't necessarily. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, good point. Good, good point. You know, it's it's kind of more bringing out the truth of ourselves right you know uh, these but that's a great example of of using drugs in a way to explore for better or worse right i mean like let's not say that land botched anything right i mean let's say that he he uncovered his his truth and is doing the best he can as, yeah. as we all are to uh, right. to sort of come to grips with the world um i don't know i think you're right though there's a certain amount of resentment that seems to color his whole vibe these days i won't judge him or his his choices or or whatever and he shares his his thoughts some of which are even now still so profound but you know sometimes you don't vibe with with others on that level sometimes even to you know to try to to grasp the diamonds out of the rough it can it can be harmful for one's own psychic and spiritual forces you know so i don't have i don't really have anything personally against against him or his work just it's not for me 
And I think that's kind of how um, that's kind of how like Proust talks about his work. He's like, look, you know, the book is meant to be a mirror and you're supposed to read into yourself. If it's not the right machine for that, if it's not the right apparatus, find find something else, right? Find something that works for you. I also think Deleuze and Guattari are kind of trying to teach us that too, right? What they're 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 kind of like, look, you know, see if it works and how it works, and if it works for you, if it if it furthers, you know, your ambitions or what you're searching for, right? We're all we're all searching. If it works, then then do something with it, right? I don't know. I just got the impression from, <laughs> I guess, really, perhaps just looking back at the entire reading of the book up to this point is that this is two things. It's the manifesto for like, you can draw a clear line to accelerationism from this book. Mm-hmm. Yep. You could even say, I don't know, it's like the manifesto for accelerationism in a sense. It's certainly the manifesto, I think, to give it that moniker for libidinal economy. Yeah. For taking libidinal economy seriously. Yeah, not as, a, exactly. not as a parody of anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, the way they end the section where they say, you know, accelerate deterritorialization and decoding, it also vibes very much with uh, Leotard's call to accelerate decadence in the Nietzschean sense. And this is right. how she develops it, right? Where it is about the destruction of values and not about restoring old values. And Deleuze and Guattari have their own way of talking about this we'll see that more in chapter four yeah. where they're they're like there are ways of investing desire in such a way that we desire the resurrection and the restoration of the old body right of the old body without organs um, i have a i have a personal yeah. example that yeah. pertains to this i think well kind of and i've talked about this before and as far as like growing up in a small town and I think I've used Durkheim's terminology of mechanical versus organic solidarity. Mm-hmm. So it's in the smaller social group, there's an organic solidarity. There's a coding, right? The coding yeah. the sol- coding in the sense of there are clear behavioral things that you must do if you are a certain type of person. Like if you're a male, you're supposed to play football, right? Or there's yes. prescriptions on, there's regulations on behavior. Mm-hmm. That are a lot more, let's say, I guess, apparent, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're a lot more apparent and they're enforced a lot more strictly or followed more strictly, right? By the social, which in this way is a very, in a sense, there's a liberty in the, well, I don't want to say liberty, but there is a freeing of anxiety in having a prescribed role and kind of knowing, okay, this is my path. So I have less anxiety. I can follow the clear codes within the social and say, okay, right. I'm this, I'm that, I'm supposed to do this. Okay, great. I do my role, etc. within the body without organs. On the flip side of that, there is the, that's very uh, repressive in yes. a sense. There's a social repression that goes on. And personally, at least consciously, I did not enjoy the strict coding of the small town because it's like, Everybody knows your business. It's closed-minded. It's this bubble. My father had a bad reputation in the town, so that I like inherited right. this fucking reputation. The, the sins and, of the father. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, so, in that way, I'm like, fuck that shit. I hate that shit. I hate the religion element. It plays a role too, because of of course, you know, that's a big part of the social coding. The decoded flows would be something like a major city, right? Because there's the codes are scrambled. Like you, there's a lot more freedom to choose whatever path you want to take the flip side of that on the other side of the ledger is you have to take on some certain anxiety in knowing what to become. Yeah. 
Yeah, you don't have a pre-established model anymore. You don't have a pre-established model, which can cause anxiety, but there's a certain liberation to it. Mm-hmm. And so I think I would rather be on the side of the decoded flows in that sense. Yeah, or at least I, a, a somewhat more decoded social because of this repressive, you're determined by the social or whatever. Like there's, That is one good aspect of the decoded flows or capitalism that I think Guattari is kind of recognizing this. But I don't, know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if you think this is even relevant. I could cut it out if you don't. Oh, I think it's totally relevant. No, I, I do think it's totally relevant. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's this notion of we always, we always hear it asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Sometimes it's said, what do you want to do? But a lot of times it's, what do you want to be? Right. And what you're kind of showing. And I, 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 you know, growing up in, in Georgia in a, maybe a slightly bigger town, but still a small town in in Georgia, you know, I, I faced a lot of the same things that you're talking about where for the most part, there are very narrow channels that you get to navigate. Right. Um, There's, in a certain sense, there aren't a lot of freedoms. And part of that is for certain types of people. And, you know, maybe for, for a young person, when you're still potentially able to become anything, it provides a lot of structure, right? It provides a lot of reassurance. It becomes easier to make decisions and it narrows down your options. On the one hand, that can feel like security and stability. Right. Yes. In, in like Brave New World and the Utopia you know, it's, it's, it is about identity, security, stability, right? It is about this thing where sort of everything's already plotted out for you. You're already, you already know which, which cast you're in based on your biological decanting. You know, you already, you are kind of assigned roles. You don't have to make, everything's kind of pre-planned for you. And, you know, as you were saying, that is that is we can call it a, a recoding or an overcoding or the resilience and residues of, of coding. We could also talk about it in terms of re-territorialization. I mean, you brought up Christianity and the and the Christian church and the function of, you know, I went to a small church, a non-denominational yeah. church. And uh, I mean, you talk about the holier than thou thing. It is a kind of reinforcing of the superego, for example. Yes. Right. Because for me, I know I know that Freud. There's a simplification of of Freud. He does vacillate on this a little bit, but this this notion of of a kind of superego as this internalized authority figure, usually based on the usually based on the image of the parent, even sometimes just the father, right? Which we know Lacan kind of develops in the name of the father and all that stuff. There's a guilt. There's a guilt. Yes. Present in the debt is the guilt for the sacrifice of Christ. Right. yeah, uh-huh. produces endless. Yeah, that produces endless guilt. And the guilt, the guilt, in is the way that the gift, in the way that the gifts are in, inhabited by spirits, and you want to get rid of that, right? It's almost the inverse mm-hmm. with the debt. Well, well I, you, not the inverse exactly, but you know what I'm saying. There's no equivalent counter gift, right? Right. There, there's no which matches sim- on to capitalism, right? There, right. The there's master. no. There's there's no symbolic exchange that can be. The only way to pay back the infinite debt of Christ's sacrifice is to live in accordance with with the codes and norms and values that are established by whatever sect of Christianity and whatever 
norm and value of the society within which you live, the, the little town, you know, that you're talking about, that's the only way to, to counter gift it is to sort of live a Christian life and believe, repent, be baptized and, and, and all of that and confess your sins. You know, all that stuff is, is a way of more deeply rooting the internalization of the guilt of the superego and sort of internalizing that panopticon that, that's always kind of watching over our actions, even with the myth of Santa Claus, which seems benevolent right, all- on, <laughs> on the surface. Yeah, Santa Claus is all seeing and the gifts you receive are supposed to reflect your behavior in the past year. So if you get a lump of coal, you've been a bad boy. And if you want gifts, you better act correctly. So it's a way of reinforcing behavior protocols and a way of reinforcing quote unquote good behavior based on criteria that aren't within your purview, right? They're they're determined for you. And, you know, that type of punishment reward system is, is a function of social and psychic repression, right? It's, it is the, it is the kind of thing where, because, you know, in, in the Bible, the, the, it vacillates for me, at least my reading of the Bible, it vacillates where so much of the Bible is kind of, you have the extremes of kind of Solomon and, and Ecclesiastes saying, you know, the, the sun shines on the evil and the, the good and the wicked alike right? You do also have this kind of thing where performing good acts and living with faith, you will be rewarded. But on the other hand, you have the conundrum of someone like Job, right? Who is faced with an immoral type of situation or an amoral type of situation where morality does not equate with prosperity, where morality is not the factor where the the world, the universe is, and God himself is an amoral character. You know, when Job finally breaks down and asks why, God's just like, because. That's the figure of authority, right? Where it's, Zizek's good on this, where he's like, he prefers the conservative traditionalist father over the over the liberal father, right? Because the liberal father uses guilt to get you to do what, what he wants. Whereas the conservative father tells you that you must and, and doesn't provide a reasoning, doesn't reason with you, doesn't try to insinuate guilt where he's like, we're going to grandma's. That's it. You know, but the liberal father's like, well, don't you know, your, your grandma would be, she'd really like to see you. And she would, you would, she would be so sad if you didn't come on the trip with us, all that shit. That's how I got, when I stopped wanting to go to church, I was just like, I'm done with this shit. You know, when I was 12, that's part of that's what my mom and dad tried to try to do is kind of like, like, oh, don't you know, everybody wants to see you. Don't you want to <laughs> don't you want to be a good boy and all that crap? Yeah. Instead of it being, like, <laughs> no, you're going you're going to fucking church. Get out of bed. Yeah, I had, see, that's funny because I either my grandfather or my dad would make me go to church and they wouldn't they wouldn't try to guilt trip you. They would just say you're going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And to a certain extent, that is more preferable. It, it's I'm not saying it's ideal or the best thing where, you know, the best thing obviously would be like, just I mean, I hate, I would, I, yeah, I, I didn't like it. I, I hated it. I mean, that's kind of why, I mean, even on my other side, like my mom's second husband, they would make me go to church when I would visit them too. And uh-huh. I'm like, fuck that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I forcing mean, I me to go to this. I, 
hated the hypocrisy of, of right. all the holier than thou people at church. There were exactly. some good, there were some good people. Yeah, for sure. But, but, you know, for the, I mean, so much of the history of the church, even though it, it is starting to change and we have a, we have a good Pope, you know, now I'm not a Catholic, but you know, a more liberal Pope who's, who tends to have messages that are at odds with the immense conservatism and dogma and doctrine of the church historically. But, um, and you know, you're slowly seeing like Episcopalian churches allowing for women to be preachers or more accepting of, of, like, of, of the like, gay community yeah, and stuff right? like that. But so many, but, but, but the church that you and I grew up in where, you know, uh, homosexuality is a, is an eternal sin. Um, yeah. All, all sins are created equal, but this one, right. That one homosexuality being, you know, and you have to, how do you justify that? Except go back to Leviticus. You have to use these. It's so weird how that works, right? Yeah. Like, that's a very strange phenomenon. Not even on the Catholic side, the Catholic side, I think is even a little more, makes a little more, more sense. It's like less hypocritical than the, the Protestant side. Well, because for, for, for the Catholics, everything is pretty much written down and clear what the church has decided upon. Right. Even if the Pope is, is decoding a little bit of these things. It's the decoding you know, it's pretty, of the flows, though, that they do, see that it's the decoding of the flows the Protestants don't like. Each sect has its own and each little community has its own ways of emphasizing the codes when they see someone stepping out of line or when they see someone pursuing types of becoming that are anathema to their to their values yeah homosexuality being one of them you know when i was growing up you know transsexuality wasn't even you know that wasn't even brought up in church but but you can imagine it easily could have been it would have just been lumped in with yeah with the homophobia and the um and the misogyny and in some churches not my church thank god but i had a friend who wanted to become a preacher really really nice guy he took me to church one day i was probably 16 first time i've been to a southern baptist church and it had all of the all of the bigotry lumped into one sermon you know homophobia misogyny racism all that shit just a smorgasbord of reactive and reactionary forces that kind of stuff is a part of the re-territorializations of subjectivity and 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 uh, it is, in a certain extent, at odds with capitalism. But capitalism can make another axiom for it and say, "No, that's yeah. fine. Uh, we can we can market homophobia. We can market sexism and misogyny and racism. There's a market for that." Yeah. Right. It's interesting in how those things persist in that way. So that that's where I think Deleuze and Guattari have to say that coding or residues of coding still coexist in capitalism. Yeah. Because to a certain extent, capitalism can make a buck off of it. Right. Right. Capitalism can get a surplus value out of out of it, even if it itself doesn't have to espouse any upkeep of religion or ritual. It can still allow for an axiom where it says, OK, well, within this little sector of this little zone of desire, this little zone of power. Yeah. I mean, homophobia right. can can be a commodity just like anything else. Because it's going to intelligently direct its investments efficiently. Yeah, it's going to diversify its assets. It's going right? to look at the social and say, well, I don't really have to expend as much resources towards this. Flows will go in this direction a lot more aggressively or whatever. Right. Right. So it's a, uh, so I mean, this is kind of why Deleuze and Guattari end up where they do at the end of this, uh, our section for today saying, 
perhaps the way out is through perhaps the way to perhaps accelerating the process is the only way to, to sort of bring the resonance of the, of the crises that are only incremental and uh, built temporary and, and, and separated to, to accelerate it so much that the, that the crises can't like shake the edifice that shake the, the movement of the, of the displacement of the limits, right. That it's, yeah. It's kind of like the way they talk about shattering Oedipus, right? The triangle, the triangle of Oedipus. I think that that's what we'll kind of see when we finish this chapter and when we move on to chapter four is the chapter four is going to be like, okay, what is schizoanalysis going to offer us that psychoanalysis can't? Mm-hmm. And how is that going to change our views? Because to a certain extent, it does seem like they are pessimistic. I think that that's the thing you can't just be naively optimistic. You do have to have a kind of Hegelian negation of the negation. You do have to go kind of through the dark night. You have to have that dark night of the soul, the, the negative path in order to, in order to then affirm. I think that's what we'll see. I think that, I think that we'll, things are going to be brighter, <laughs> you know, like the sun, sun will come out next chapter. I wanted to go back before I forget and just clarify on the Durkheim shit about mechanical and organic solidarity because i think i mistakenly said organic would be the smaller social groups when that's mechanical mm-hmm. which makes i mean ties i mean even they say mechanical the homo- homogeneity of individuals correct right? filial relations etc versus and so it's also it's enforced by coding versus the organic would be the more like deterritorialized or decoded flows the decoded flows map onto organic solidarity would be just, I should just say that. Yeah. So in a certain sense, we live in different times. There is, this is part of maybe the, the schizoid time of the diachrony where, you know, growing up in a small town, we are submitted to mechanical solidarity. And yet that the town is open to an outside, right? You know, as your circle widens, the different segmentations, we see that there is an organic side that it's always on the periphery and, and even, you know, insinuated in, in the center, but we do live in both times. And uh, that's also part of, of childhood and child rearing, although that may change more, but we, we do see that the homogeneity is a value. That's kind of what we've been talking about and what, what you and I both struggled against. Again, for some people, homogeneity can be can feel safe and secure and comfortable the anonymity to me is what i love about the city it was a breath of fresh air when i moved out and it was like oh well nobody knows who the fuck i am or anything they don't you can be anybody yeah exactly i'm not my father's son i'm just a guy right like there's a whole opening up of possibility there it's becoming imperceptible yeah right i mean it, it is it is the there is a freedom to that. And as you said, it does come with a, with a bit of anxiety, but part of the anxiety is not always, but some of anxiety, at least, at least elements of it is kind of like the nervousness one feels before one has to perform, like go on stage or, uh, yeah. or, 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 or at a, like a sports events. I mean, you and I both played a lot of sports and that, that anxiety, that nervousness is, is kind of the prelude to that adrenaline rush. You know, yeah, precisely. Um, yeah. And so there is a that freedom. It is terrifying on the one hand. Fear um, keeps me alive, but exhilarating too. Yeah, fear keeps you alive, right? 
weakness keeps me alive. By the next time we record, I'm going to have, I'm going to get to the fucking bottom of some of the stuff about surplus code and surplus value. And oh, good. I had some yeah, ideas, I had some ideas to get into it, but um, I just. Yeah, this I, is probably a good stopping point. Yeah. I think. And one of the things that I always like, hopefully the, the listeners enjoy is when we aren't just two disembodied voices, but when we talk about our, we talk about our, our, our personal lives, right? We, we, we actually talk real life examples. That'll be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off for the, the week. The very roots of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens then is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Lobotomized people as in a block work orange.